Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A warning before we start. The material in this podcast is very dark. We'll be discussing violent crimes against children. We'll try to be restrained where we can, but to tell this story, we sometimes have to be pretty graphic. Ready? How do you feel about clowns? They're not a a favorite of mine. I, as a, on a personal, on a, on a personal note, I was a boy that grew up in Chicago, in the shadow of the Gacy case. That image of that killer clown that they continually played in the media and put in the newspapers, probably contributed to my apprehension of clowns. But uh, this isn't about him. This is about victims of murder. It's about missing persons unidentified deceased persons, families, providing answers. It's about what are we as law enforcement and what are we in society doing with missing and unidentified person cases. Not knowing the fate of your missing loved one is worse than hearing what happened. For ID, this is the Clown and the Candyman. I'm Jacqueline Bynan. That was Lieutenant Jason Moran, head of the Cold Case Division at the Cook County Sheriff's Office in Chicago, Illinois. In the past seven episodes, we've learned about the 1970s and the men who exploited America's trust to prey upon boys. It's easy to talk about the killers and predators. Sadly, they're always the stars of these kind of shows. It's not easy to talk about the victims and their families. It's not something they ever get over. Reliving their son or brother's last moments, tortured, raped, murdered, and then buried in John Wayne Gacy's basement or Dean Corll's rented boat shed? One father said it's like carrying a pocket full of stones. Every year you take one out. It gets a little lighter. 
but you always have a pocket full of stones. I remember speaking with Eugenia Godsick, the sister of Gregory Godsick. He was one of John Wayne Gacy's victims. The 17-year-old just started working part-time for Gacy in late November 1976. Gregory was thrilled with the job. Gacy was paying him really good money. Then he went out on a date one night and never came home. The family never heard a word from him, and the police couldn't find a trace of him. You just wonder, hope, wait, and and you assume, oh, he'll be back, he'll be back, and wherever you'd go, you always look, well, maybe he's over here, you know. Two years later, two days before Christmas, his sister remembers watching the TV with her mother as the bodies were removed from Gacy's house. You have to realize, you know, there were a few TV stations and everybody carried the same thing. And when it came on, I do remember my mother said, your brother's one of them. We were lucky enough that in two years we found closure in our family, but other people could be wondering, where are they, who are they? That's the sad part. To date, some of the victims of John Wayne Gacy the Clown and Dean Coral the Candyman remain unidentified. Imagine if your son or brother went missing in the 70s and you're still wondering if he was one of the bodies in Gacy's basement or Coral's rented boat shed. The killers didn't care. They had no remorse. You heard Gacy. He talked about them as if they were items, not kids with families. But there are people who did care and still do. In Houston, forensic anthropologist Dr. Sharon Derrick has devoted years to identifying Dean Coral's unnamed victims. And in Chicago since 2011, Lieutenant Jason Moran is doing the same. When you do criminal investigations for any amount of time, you know that there's always more to a case than you hear in court or that you hear in the media. I learned that of Gacy's 33 victims, eight of them were never identified. So I went back to the sheriff. And I said, Sheriff, there's actually eight unidentified deceased persons in one case. And he said, which one, what, what is that one? And I said, it's the Gacy case. I said, the case is not clear and closed like we thought it was. There's horrific cases all over the country, murder and rape and loss of hope, but we couldn't think of a victim or victims who more deserved a second chance at identification than these boys. They were brutally raped and murdered by this evil man. And then they were even deprived of the dignity of having a name in death. So we decided to bring DNA technology to this case, something that was not available to our predecessors. So the first part of it was, we had to have a biological sample from the unidentified victims. And that would be in the form of, of bone. If this was an episode of CSI, it might start with human remains laid out neatly on a table. Then in 25 minutes of television, the answer would be made perfectly clear. In life, the real story is more complicated. It was a long process of exhumation after exhumation. And then there's the condition of those remains. Getting a DNA sample was going to be a long shot at best. Gacy's victims were buried in a crawl space where they slowly degraded. Gacy would put lime and acid on the graves to hasten decomposition and to counteract the odor. Then the remains were excavated. 
They were removed to the medical examiner's office and then cleaned through a chemical process. That chemical process is not helpful for DNA. And then the remains sat in different circumstances. They were buried in a grave that has a lot of water, bacteria. So all we could do was try. Science did come to the rescue, though. They were able to get DNA profiles for all eight victims from those remains. And that's when the real detective work began. We were looking for families of missing persons who their loved one fit the profile of the victims in the Gacy case. Who was Gacy and who was his victims? And you could start to clearly see a profile. You know, these were sexually motivated crimes. Gacy was choosing these boys because he was attracted to them in some way. Did he have a certain look or type? They ranged in age from about 14, his youngest victim for 14, and his oldest victim was in their early 20s. They were all on the shorter side. They were not heavy. They were thin. We also knew the time period that Gacy would kill. So we knew if these boys were missing from about 1972 to about the end of 1978, that that was young men we wanted to concentrate on. One thing we had to learn from opening the case is, how did Gacy acquire his victims? So I could listen to the stories from the families and learn if the circumstances surrounding their loved one's disappearance fell in to one of the categories of how Gacy acquired his victims. We also knew Gacy owned a business, PDM Construction, and that he would hire young men to do labor work and that some of his employees ended up being his victims. Some of Gacy's victims were gay. Gacy himself was a gay man, and that some of his victims were also gay prostitutes. The only thing that sort of threw that off was that Gacy was known to impersonate policemen. He had a car that looked like a police car with a light on the side of it, a spotlight, and he had a gun and handcuffs and badges, and he would patrol some areas, look for young men walking, and he'd do a street stop on them. You know, come over here, put your hands on the car, pat them down, handcuff them, put them in his car, take them back to his house where, where they were killed. That was the only part of the victim profile that sort of threw everything off, because those were random boys. I had to ask Lieutenant Moran, why weren't these eight boys identified back when the story broke in 1978? The story of bodies in a basement in Chicago was front page news for months. You know, it may be hard for some people to think that some people just don't have anyone. They don't have anybody to report them missing. They don't have anybody to claim their remains. It could be because families don't have dental records. But we started to talk about how the media continually pounded the fact that Gacy was a homosexual and that his victims were gay. The parents of, of these kids, they were from the 30s, 40s, 50s. They were not ready to accept the fact that their children may have been gay, let alone be associated with a gay killer. So 
It was an unfair depiction. Though some of Gacy's victims were gay, some of them were not. One reason why we reopened the case also is because we thought that those opinions, those opinions have changed somewhat. And that someone who maybe was reticent back in the 70s may be ready now to talk about it. So there were eight unidentified bodies. That meant eight families out there whose missing son, brother, cousin could be a Gacy victim. But when the Cook County Sheriff's Office reopened the case, they got way more than they bargained for. Within a couple days, we received over 100 calls from family members of missing persons all over the country. And I was becoming a national repository for missing kids from the 70s. All those people looking for him to finally give them an answer. What I learned from talking to Lieutenant Moran for months, he's not impervious to the stresses associated with being a cold case detective. He embraces it full on. I've interviewed dozens and dozens and dozens of family members of long-term missing persons. They are some of the saddest people that you can meet. And it's because they live in a cruel limbo. Our minds are made to understand that we will die. When your loved one is missing, you do not have that benefit. So family members of long-term missing persons, you really wanna help because they're starving for any sort of answer. So when I accomplish what my assignment is, it brings a certain amount of harm to the person that I'm going to have to report this to. Having to report to spouses and family members that their loved one is dead is a very difficult thing to do. It's no different to have to report to someone that their missing loved one from 30 or 40 years ago was murdered. The call to the public went out in October of 2011. Within a month, Lieutenant Moran received leads for 125 missing young men from people in 29 states. A month later, he identified one of those eight bodies, victim number 19, 19-year-old William George Bundy. The high school dropout had been working construction jobs in Chicago. One night in October 1976, he told his 15-year-old sister he was going to a party. He was never seen again. Because he was over 18, the missing persons report wasn't a priority for law enforcement. His dental records had been destroyed, so the family was left with no way to come forward when Gacy's crimes hit the news, until the Cook County Sheriff's Office reopened the case with DNA. Delivering that news at first was um, very shocking and very traumatic to William Bundy's family. In Bill's case, they did suspect that he may have been killed by Gacy because he fit the profile, because they lived in the area where Gacy was known to prowl. They suspected it, but hearing those words, I'm sorry to report that your missing brother, Bill, was killed by this evil man. And he has been unidentified for 35 or 36 years. And he's been buried in a cemetery all that time. That's where he's been. It's hard to hear those words. But one answer 
with all the families I've worked with, one answer always creates more questions. Well, how did my loved one come into contact with Gacy? So then it, the process begins trying to answer additional questions if you can. And I stay involved with the families. We talk hours, days, weeks, months, and years later. Over the next six years, the work continued. In the process, Lieutenant Moran solved four cold case murders and located five missing persons still alive. In some cases, he was able to reunite them with their families. Then in 2017, Lieutenant Moran identified a second Gacy victim. Victim number 24, 16-year-old Jimmy Hackinson. Hackinson had left his home in Minnesota in August of 1976. Jimmy had done this before, but he always came back. And a few days later, he called his mother from the bus depot in Chicago to let her know he was fine. They never heard from Jimmy again. Once again, there were no dental records, and the family was left without answers until 2017. There's a haunting aspect to the work Lieutenant Moran does, and it goes back to being the National Repository for Missing and Murdered Boys. There's been many missing young men that have been reported missing to me. They fit the victim profile in the case. I've interviewed families, I've collected DNA, had the analysis done, and there's no genetic association to Gacy's unidentified victims. I have dozens of boys like that. And there's absolutely no proof of life and no proof of death for them. Where are these boys? Where are they now? Are they alive and out there somewhere? Or are they deceased? That speaks to the 70s and the large number of missing boys. Serial killers like Gacy in Chicago and Coral in Houston and sex traffickers like John Norman they were like kids in a candy store back then. There's no question it's a daunting task. With six of Gacy's victims left to identify, Lieutenant Moran is focusing now on two in particular, victim number five and victim number 28. Now, a bit of an explanation here. When we refer to a victim number, it means the order in which the bodies were removed from Gacy's house, not the order in which they were murdered. Along with DNA, Lieutenant Moran is using a new tool to crack these cases, the age-old hobby of tracing your family tree with public records. It's the very same method that caught the Golden State Killer. Well, since we've been working on this for a few years, a new method has come to light, and that's forensic genealogy. In the fall of 2019, the Cook County Sheriff's Office decided to work with the DNA Doe Project. It's a nonprofit organization that uses genetic genealogy to identify John and Jane Doe's. Police in California used genetic genealogy in 2018 to identify and convict the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo. The former police officer was responsible for 13 murders, 51 rapes, and more than 120 burglaries from 1974 to 1986. So what is genetic, or forensic, genealogy, as they call it? It combines consumer DNA tests, like the ones you buy from 23andMe or Ancestry, with the hobby of tracing family trees. Depending on how big your family is, you could have hundreds of cousins. If a genealogist can find a cousin of an unknown victim in the DNA databases, they can use that family tree to narrow down the search for a detective like Lieutenant Moran. So the first victim that we 
started with is victim number five. I uh, chose that victim because when we did the conventional DNA testing, that victim's remains produced the highest amount of usable DNA for conventional testing. These results now go to a different lab, and that lab uh, sort of separates out any sort of bacterial DNA that has accumulated on the remains over the last 40 years. And then they'll upload it to the databases, the genealogy databases. And that's when it starts to get interesting. Who are their in common relatives? And are any of them missing? And that's where the conventional detective work starts. The phone calls, the in-person meetings. Who was this relative that went missing? Oh, it was my uncle had a child that we never talk about. He went missing in this time period and, you know, so he does have a brother. Not like CSI, it all doesn't happen within 45 minutes. Lieutenant Moran also has a lead on victim number 28. And this is one I think about a lot. This young man's story is intriguing. Victim number 28, he was buried in Gacy's backyard underneath a barbecue pit. He was the last victim found in March of 1979 when they were destroying Gacy's house. Gacy had elaborate barbecues every 4th of July. He invited the whole neighborhood, his political contacts. It was a huge event. Every year, a different theme. One was a luau, one had a Western theme. And there were hundreds of people in costumes milling around his yard. I've seen the photos of Gacy at the grill, smiling. And beneath the barbecue was victim number 28. In the last episode, you heard Gacy and Randy White, the Canadian guy who spent years helping in Gacy's appeal. The two of them talked about victim number 28 in their phone calls. Listen and notice again how Gacy distances himself from the bodies beneath his house. He might have been one of the earlier ones, even though he was the 28th one found. He had been one that was deceased before 77. Yeah, is that when the driveway was uh, paved over or something? Well, because, yeah, that whole area was concreted in 76. So it would have been before 76, right? Yeah. Well, late 76, as best as I can recall now. He had a uh, very simple silver band uh, on the commitment finger of his left hand. And I just thought to myself that if someone cared about this victim so much to give them a silver band that would have been placed on the commitment finger of the left hand, that why was he never identified? Why did no one come forward? I was thinking the same thing as well. Who gave him that ring? I asked Lieutenant Moran if he had any clues about this young man. A family member recently called. She had a missing half-brother. Their in-common mother was a bit of a rolling stone and had multiple husbands and boyfriends. And they lived separately as a result of that for most of their youth. Later on, this woman who reached out for me said that she wanted to know her brother, so she reached out to him. He decided to move here to Chicago, and they had a wonderful time. Imagine that. You finally reconnect with your half-brother after all those years. You move in together. Everything is good. It's the two of you against the world in the big city. 
and then he disappears from your life once again. His sister also reported him being homosexual. He also told his sister that he was quite distraught before his disappearance because he was in love with another man who was married. The circumstances surrounding his disappearance, last seen getting in a car with an unknown older male white, fits quite perfectly with what we know about how Gacy acquired his victims. And sure enough, in the Gacy room, there was a file, a missing persons file on this individual from the late 70s. So I collected a DNA sample, uh, submitted it to the lab, and the lab will look at him and they'll start seeing if there's genetic associations between relatives of this missing boy and victim number 28. It's a waiting game for both victim number five and victim number 28. But a thousand miles away in Houston, a similar story is playing out with the last unnamed victim of the other serial killer who hunted boys, Dean Coral, the Candyman, and it's a mystery as well. Forensic anthropologist Dr. Sharon Derrick has spent 14 years analyzing his bones and the remnants of his life. That boy is still without a name, and his story hasn't traveled much outside of Texas. But the clues to his identity may be found in his clothing. His case number is ML733356. But we call him Swimsuit Boy. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
When I work with the bones themselves and manipulate them and lay them out, measure them, look at all their different things that you record on them, it becomes a very intimate process. I, I think it's the most intimate process of all to be touching the final remains of an individual who was on this earth and had a life. And I find that to be very self-sustaining in a way, and it, it's hope. When you put that final puzzle piece in, it's like a light comes on and you feel like you've really done something worthwhile. And that's why it is so fascinating to be a forensic anthropologist. Since 2006, Dr. Sharon Derrick has been decoding the mystery of Dean Coral's last unidentified victims and doing much of it on her own time. I had the chance to meet with her in the lab. These Houston mass murders, people don't know about them nationally. They've all heard of John Wayne Gacy, but they have not heard of Dean Coral. And although it's a, a terrible, horrible time in our past, these boys deserve the recognition that a terrible thing happened to them. Coral's 29 victims, like Gacy's, were boys, lured with promises of beer, grass, money, a party, a job, then trapped with the handcuff trick, raped, strangled with a rope, and then buried. Dr. Derrick was a kid in 1973 when Coral and his sadistic murder shocked America. I'm trying to figure out how you got involved in the Dean Coral case. I previously was at uh, the Harris County Institute of Forensic Sciences in Houston, and I saw these three boxes, and each of them said Houston mass murders on them. And I immediately clicked back to when I was in high school. I remember my teenage horror, and I thought, oh my gosh, they have some of the remains from that, and they're not identified? I was kind of starstruck at the three boxes, to tell you the truth. And so I asked the deputy chief, may I be assigned these cases? And he said, yes. Armed with DNA and her own detective work, she's identified six of them. But the last boy is a mystery. And I wonder if someone out there listening to this podcast will recognize a clue. We call him Swimsuit Boy. Ever the reverent scientist, though, Dr. Derrick, she calls him by his case number. ML 73-3356 has been described uh, over and over again, but it's very important that none of this gets lost to the public. He was in the boat shed, and he appears to have been buried somewhere around 71-72. He was probably 15 to 17 years old. He was Caucasian, we call that European-American or he may have had some Hispanic. He's relatively short for a young man at about 5'6". I think he's probably quite an attractive young man. Right now, the search for this boy's identity is uh, in the hands of genealogical DNA. Until recently, that was the DNA Doe Project, the same company dealing with Gacy's victim number five. But now their website states Swimsuit Boy's case is on hold. We tried to find out why, but we can't get any answers so far. Dr. Derrick, though, believes the clues to his identity may be in the clothes he was wearing when he was murdered. Google Harris County and ML 733356. You'll find the pictures. There are two distinctive items, 
and one of them is why he's known as Swimsuit Boy. That swimsuit that was with him, it was a nice, relatively expensive swimsuit. It was a Catalina, back before Catalina changed their label that they use now, and it was this dolphin badge on the front of it. And it's very, you know, you'd think you, people would see it as this bright, bright stripe, but no, nobody has recognized that. He also had with him a T-shirt that on the back of it, it had this decal that had a peace sign over a United States flag. And then down underneath that, in handwriting, somebody wrote with an indelible marker, L84MF, late for my funeral which is sort of a military slang. And so we're wondering if maybe he had a family member who may have been serving or had served in the Vietnam War. Or was he from somewhere else? After all, no one from Houston has come forward. More intriguing, though, in 1973, the police found photos of teens in Coral's house, pictures he took of young men at Galveston Beach. He drove them out there in his van to surf or swim in the ocean. Chatter now on the internet wonders if Swimsuit Boy was a surfer kid hitchhiking around America. Is the L8 on that t-shirt really LB for Long Beach, California? Dr. Derrick didn't stop there. She visited Dean Corll's two accomplices in prison, David Brooks and Elmer Wayne Henley, the two teens who helped Corll abduct, murder, and bury his 29 victims. I wanted to hear from them whether they had come up with any other ideas of who these people were. Wayne Henley, um, when I met with him in prison, we talked for about five hours. So that tells you something about how he was actually trying to provide information. When I met with David Brooks, the very first interview that I had with him, he seemed to be um, just really wanting to provide me information, but he was also very cold in his way. His eyes seemed very cold, and he seemed like, like he really wasn't a nice person. On May 28, 2020, Brooks died in prison from COVID-19. He was 65. He never told Dr. Derek anything that could help with Swimsuit Boy. Remember Episode 5, John Norman, the Apex Predator? Because we'd been looking so closely at John Norman's ring in Dallas in 1973, I asked Dr. Derek what Brooks and Henley said about Dean Corll's network. According to Brooks and Henley, Dean Corll did kill other people. Uh, and that he was secretive about that, and that there were many times, especially Henley recalled this, there were many times that he went out by himself. Dean was always bragging about having a part in this sex ring through Dallas and then California. Let that sink in. Dean Corll told his young accomplices he was connected to a sex ring through Dallas and California. We know that John Norman was running his boys for rent scheme out of Dallas at the time of the murders in Houston. Dallas police busted him not even a week after the discovery of Coral's 29 victims. We also know Norman's network stretched across America, including California. So was that the ring that Dean told Henley and Brooks about? Again, no one from Houston has come forward about this unidentified boy, not in 16 years. 
So maybe he wasn't from Houston. Maybe he was from California. Maybe he was one of sex trafficker John David Norman's boys for rent. If we had Norman's index cards, you remember, the ones that listed all his clients and some of his boys for rent, the ones that kept disappearing every time he got arrested around the country. If we had those cards, maybe we'd find swimsuit boys somewhere among them. But they're gone, so the only clues to his identity are in his clothing or his DNA. Dr. Derrick left the Harris County Institute of Forensic Science in 2018. We contacted them several times for an interview about Swimsuit Boy, and they denied all our requests. To our knowledge, Harris County has not pursued or participated in any national coverage that might help to identify this young man. It's a pity, because time is running out. We have tried to put out a wide net that we need DNA from families to compare all over the U.S. I do believe that it's a race against the clock to get this boy identified. I'm really hoping that this new methodology with the forensic genealogist will bear fruit. I'm afraid that if it doesn't, the case is going to sit again because where do we go from here? I have grown to love these boys, even though I never got to see them in real life, never got to talk to them. That somewhere, somehow, his family was missing him, and they didn't know why he didn't come back. They don't know if he ran away. They don't know if something happened to him, which it did. It's really important to name this last boy. Everybody, has their own identity and they do things in life and they have connections they have plans they have dreams and hopes and this was taken away from these boys and they deserve to have that back it's a it's a basic human right to have your identity in place and have people know what happened to you and who you were if you recognize that swimsuit from a young man you knew before 1972 who went missing contact the Harris County Institute of Forensic Sciences. Meanwhile, a thousand miles north in Chicago, Lieutenant Moran is still working on victims number five and number 28. Through the forensic genealogy process, I've learned of a potential person that victim number five may be. Every time I've talked to Lieutenant Moran in the past few months, I thought he was going to say, I've made an identification. I've identified another Gacy victim. I've learned to be patient. The cold case wheels of justice grind slowly, but they do grind. The last time I talked to him, he had something new about victim number five. We have now learned that victim number five is related in some way to a family in another state. I couldn't believe it. It wasn't that long ago that the genealogy test just started on victim number five. Then suddenly, Lieutenant Moran had a name, something to go on at last. We talked about the free movement of boys in the 70s during this entire podcast. This boy, murdered by Gacy, could be from another state, like Jimmy Hackinson, who took a bus from Minnesota to Chicago in 1976. Now... It's time to learn that the person in this individual's family is potentially missing. 
I have to see if this family back in the 70s or 80s came forward during the original Gacy murder investigation and what information is available on this individual or on this family. It's like they could have been searching for ages ago, but now they, they just didn't have the dental records or anything. Well, exactly. So now this is the detective work part of it. You have to have case facts and circumstances. So I have to learn, what's the circumstances surrounding this person's disappearance? Does it fit the profile in the Gacy case? Is the person dead? Did they die in you know the last 40 years of some other cause? Then the scientific work starts. Now, tell me about victim number 28. So I did some DNA work on it and got some results back. And there's, there's some genetic variations here that are, are hard to interpret because the family of this missing person is a maternal half-sibling. And this is where DNA work gets sort of complicated. You know, it's never as easy or as pure as it seems on TV. But you're not talking about a mother and a father comparing their DNA to one person, which would be slam dunk. So what I have to do is I have to obtain additional samples from other family members. Right now I'm sort of in a holding pattern just waiting for for results to come back. I'm wondering what kind of impact podcasts have on, on your work and what comes into the Cook County Sheriff's Office. Well, you know, really any form of media, it all helps. It not only helps me in receiving calls from family members of long-term missing persons, but it really helps show chiefs of police and politicians who fund police departments and the public that we need to have cold case units and detectives work in these types of cases because they have value. When do the police and society stop caring about someone that was murdered or someone that went missing? Is it five years? Is it 15 years? Killers need to know that you are going to be pursued until the day you die. That just because you got away with murder a year ago or two years ago or 10 years ago doesn't mean you can let your guard down. There's going to be a cold case detective somewhere that's going to be looking for you someone that went missing many years ago is just as, as as important as someone who's murdered today or goes missing today. Given everything you now know about the search for the identities of Gacy's last six unnamed boys, if you know a missing young man from 1972 to 1978 that fits the profile of a Gacy victim, you should contact Lieutenant Moran at the Cook County Sheriff's Office. The information is on their website. There's a reason this episode is called The Dust Never Settles. These interwoven webs of vice, these men who preyed upon boys flourished in the 70s, and they didn't give it a moment's thought. But the grief doesn't go away for the families of the murdered and the missing. The trauma doesn't go away for the kids abused by pedophiles. And many of these predators never paid for their crimes. When you have so many victims, like Gacy's, you know, now 27 of the 33 victims have been identified. You know, if they all had, say, 10 family members, that's 270 people right there. And then think about their extended family, the dressed up as a clown to entertain children. Think about those families. 
that allowed their, their child to bounce on a serial killer's knee. You know, you're, you're talking about thousands of people who in one way or another were affected by this, this man's evil acts. And even though 40 years now seems like a long time, it, it really isn't. Evil thrives on our inattention. It makes you more grateful for the people who pay attention, like Lieutenant Moran and Dr. Sharon Derrick. Had Sheriff Tom Dart of Cook County not set up a cold case unit, and Lieutenant Moran not realized eight Gacy victims were unidentified, those young men may have stayed a line on a police report somewhere in a dusty old police warehouse. Had Dr. Sharon Derrick not opened those boxes marked Houston Mass Murders, Dean Corll's last unidentified victims might be forgotten as well. You know, it usually takes some sort of tragedy for people to change the way they do things. And then you'll often see heightened awareness for a little while. I'd like to believe that a Gacy case couldn't happen again, but I'm constantly reminded that it's possible, especially with the use of uh, modern technology, people acquiring uh, victims for purposes of sex that eventually lead to murder is entirely possible. Many things we take for granted today didn't exist in the 70s. Depraved cases like the clown and the candy man made people take notice and prompted change. Today, police take a missing persons report immediately. We have Amber Alerts, a national sex offender registry, and a national missing persons database. Laws have changed, and pedophiles receive much stiffer sentences. Cold case units like Lieutenant Moran's are more common. And computers, the days of faxing a report from station to station are over. What took a day or two now takes minutes. What hasn't changed? The predators. Their template and tactics remain the same. Gone are the newsletters in the mail, replaced by a wider network to communicate, the Internet. Gacy, Coral, and Norman scouted their victims on the street. Now predators have gone digital. Norman's index cards listing his clients are now hidden beneath layers of protection on the dark web. When I started this project, I wanted to know if these two serial killers were connected to a pedophile ring. I'm not sure about you, but I think they were. A lot has changed since then, but here's what remains. Money and power still make a lot of things go away. The boogeyman is still out there. And nothing stays hidden forever. The Clown and the Candyman, an original podcast from ID and Cineflix Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Bynan. The series producer is Tara Hughes. Gino Anderson is our editor, with mixing by VO2 in Toronto. The executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.